We're happy to make podcasts available for selected ed webinars for your listening pleasure. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information. Well, thank you for joining us at EdWeb today. We are honoring all learners with an asset-based approach to special education during Inclusive Schools Week. My name is Carrie Larkin. I'm a senior education advisor on the education partnerships team at Lexia Learning. I will be facilitating a brilliant, beautiful panel of leaders in the field of special education um, as we as we engage with you today. And now let's get started with honoring all of our learners with an asset-based approach. I am so thrilled to introduce in alphabetical order, David Flink, who is the co-founder of eye to eye He is a CNN hero from, I think it was 2022, David. I know you won't talk about that, but I will a little bit. So he is our first panelist. I'm going to have him tell you a little bit about himself. David, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, it's awesome to be here. Um, yes, I'm humbled about the scene in here. I think so. I won't talk about it. Um, I'm dyslexic and ADHD and very proudly neurodiverse. So I always start with that. I've been doing this work in some ways since I was first a student and thinking about what it meant to be included or excluded in my classrooms. I experienced both. And since 18, where I started the nonprofit that I now and still run, I think a lot about how to serve students. I went from being a young person to a former young person. And the organization that I run is a national mentoring program that matches college and high school students who are neurodiverse with middle school students who are also neurodiverse, who can have mentors, and we do teacher training and culture change work. And I'm really so grateful to be here with my old friend, Barbara, and my new friend, Michael. And Carrie, you're a great organizer here. So thanks for pulling us together. Thank you so much, David. And thank you for sharing your background with us. So our next participant on the panel is Dr. Michael Macklin. Uh, Dr. Macklin is the Executive Director of um, Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, Belonging, and Accessibility um, in St. Louis Special School District. He is a leader to watch in the DE&I field in 2023 as an excellent TED Talk. Dr. Macklin, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. Uh, excited to be here. Uh, great to meet David and Barbara and then Carrie also just excited about the work that you do. Uh, Dr. Michael Macklin here, uh, really a passionate uh, as relates to DEIA or DEIAB. Uh, my work encompasses to ensure uh, that around 25, 30,000 students each day um, aren't marginalized uh, because of their disabilities and that we have learning spaces that are uh, inclusive for those to learn. I think my work uh, just to set the tone here, uh, also encompasses being able to lead um, and lead for systems change. Um, mm -hmm. And and so I think those uh, pieces are key. Uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, who was invited to speak in 1865 to the delegates, and he said to them, uh, we often uh, consider fire and light being the same thing. They both illuminate. He mm -hmm. said, but the difference between fire and light is whatever fire touches, it never leaves the same. And so the work that we do every single day uh, should truly be able to uh, transform. Thank you so much, Dr. Macklin. And what, what a preview of the kind of conversation we are about to have on this webinar. I appreciate your, your sharing the wisdom of, of our, for, our ancestors and uh, bringing us forward. So Barbara Pape, you are our 
final panelist for the day, the Senior Director for the Learner Variability Project at Digital Promise, conducted all of the research behind learner variability, what that means, and how it impacts students in classrooms every day. So please tell us about you and your work. I, I will, but I, I'm not the only one who did all of the research. I, there's a team of us there, and, I, and uh, uh, one of our factors of learning is collaboration, and that's something that you know we really like to, to put forth. But I am so honored to be here uh, uh, with both Michael and David, old and new and new friends, and Carrie, you as well, for, for organizing this incredibly important discussion on, on, on uh, challenges that face uh, all of our, our students. Um, my academic background is in special ed and learning disabilities, and I'm the one who came in from London because, believe it or not, in, uh, and I'll use the strength of this, not the challenge of it, not in my old age, but in my seasoned years, I'm getting a PhD at the University College London uh, focusing on these issues because what we've seen at our Learner Variability Navigator at Digital Promise, there are some gaps in the research for students who have uh, learning differences, learning disabilities, who are neurodiverse. And so I really want to pick up on my uh, old academic background into into a new a new venue, but I'll tell you the 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 rubber met the road because two of my children, well, I have two kids, both of them have dyslexia, and navigating the system, the school system, particularly for my son, despite having a research background in the area and having taught in schools, uh, and having some amazing teachers uh, in the in the school system. That navigating the system is incredibly complex. Sometimes it's traumatic and all-consuming. And the experience, uh, this experience, is the driving force behind what I, why I continue to do what I do. Specifically, you know, introducing the concept of learner variability and also strength-based and whole-child approaches to teaching and learning to ensure that all children, not just children like mine, have access to uh, full education. Uh, system support and that they're recognized and honored for who they are as people and their and the potential that they have for learning. Um, so that's that. <laughs> Thank you so much, Barbara. Um, so I'd like to open the discussion by talking about inclusion. Um, when we talk about inclusion, we talk in this case about including students with IEPs in the general education setting. And I'd love to ask each of you about a personal experience you have with inclusion. Hopefully that was a positive experience of being included or facilitating inclusion. It might not have been a positive experience and we're here to, to tell the truth about where we are and where we need to do better. Um, so maybe I could work backwards because Barbara, you were starting to share a little bit about inclusion and your own family. What mm -hmm. did it mean for you to be an expert in the field of education and the parent of two children with dyslexia? Yeah, you know, I, I think it, it, what's really important, there needs to be a mindset shift for all of us, right? So that we're not underestimating the potential for students uh, that um, uh, just because they have a deficit-based label. Mm -hmm. And to me, this means you have to address strengths as well as challenges. Addressing strengths, asset-based teaching and learning, uh, it, it, it's a motivating factor for students. It creates a sense of belonging, Michael. That's why I really love that you added belonging into your DEI because that's sort of like the end goal for, for mm -hmm. everyone, right? Is mm -hmm. that we create environments for 
all children, uh, whatever, um, what, what, whoever they are, wherever they're coming from, if they have a disability, a learning difference or not, that they are comfortable learning in the, in the classroom. Uh, I think, it, you know, personally, that did happen often with my, uh, with my son in school, and sometimes it didn't happen often. <laughs> so, you know, it, de- it depends on, on the teacher. Um, I, I also think that when you're talking about inclusion, it doesn't mean in, in an inauthentic way of just putting them in a classroom and then implicitly tracking them. It means understanding them. That's why I'm a real proponent for learner variability, which is backed by the research, but also is a little bit instinctual, right? Um, uh, so that you, you, you better understand who they are and what they need in order to customize uh, their learning. And one other thing, we did a webinar recently on EdWeb. We love EdWeb on accommodations. And uh, particularly extra time. Uh, one, a woman in our office did a wonderful research study on accommodations in math. I'll put a link in here. But it, it's, you know, not only to give students accommodations, but to help them understand how do they use that accommodation. Because just giving a kid, a student, excuse me, extra time doesn't necessarily mean they're going to know how to use that extra time unless we coach them through. That's such a great point, Barbara. And I I really appreciate your um, insight around the role of the teacher. There are some Mm -hmm. teachers that are very good at including students with disabilities. There are some who are emerging leaders in that field. And Dr. Mm -hmm. Macklin, you talked about we need to take a systems approach. We cannot rely on a teacher by teacher by teacher approach to including students with IEPs or students with disabilities. So could you talk a little bit about your own experience as a student, as a teacher, as a person of what inclusion means to you and your commitment to inclusion in the DEIBA space? Yeah, I think overall, when you speak to inclusion and truly understanding again, how how do we change those systems? Um, And through my experiences as an educator on many different levels, um, even as a leader in education space, I think one of the things that you continue to see in the educational space, and not necessarily classroom by classroom, but People don't oppress people, systems oppress people. And so how do we continue to change those systems um, that are driven by people that oppress uh, individuals? And when we talk about inclusion, uh, not being able to acknowledge differences, uh, not being able to understand that those differences make us unique. I think one of the main ways in the educational space that we see um, a lack of inclusion is when we talk about who's educated in the general education setting and who's not. Mm-hmm. What right? What is the percentage of time? A lot of times we talk about students with disabilities who are pulled out, but I will tell you, uh, in most educational spaces, spaces, the best reading teachers, the best literacy teachers are in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And so when you're pulling students with disabilities out, what you have to ask yourself the question, who's benefiting and who's not? Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Dr. Macklin. And and I'm thinking about the the point that you just made about who's created this system, who benefits from this system and who's leading this system. And it's often people who were successful in a general education setting as opposed to a special education setting. And so I would love to welcome you, David, and to share some of your experiences um, with inclusion, either as a student or as a leader or um, as a teacher, Uh, but that perspective of coming from within a community and a strength-based community and the community leaning on and leading one another. Yeah, I'll, I'll do short three little vignettes. Great. Um, <clears throat> so first, um, my mind goes straight to when I was a student. This is in the 80s. A lot wasn't known. 
Um, I wasn't identified as somebody who was neurodiverse, but I, if you looked at me for 30 seconds, you probably had a guess I was ADHD. I was constantly moving. Uh, it's why I'm standing today as we're doing this presentation, as opposed to sitting like some of my friends here, because um, that's how I learned best. But they didn't know that. And so my constant movement was deemed as, you know, a breaking to the cultural norm, as opposed to thinking about how to include me. Literally, they moved my chair outside the classroom. They're like, you are too distracting to all the other students. Mm -hmm. We're individualizing your education. <laughs> and, you know, immediately the message was received. I didn't belong there. And it didn't matter that I was in third grade. I figured it out quickly. Fast forward a couple of years later, it was just a different choice that a teacher made. The teacher literally began the year and said, I went and bought a bunch of BOSI balls. This is before BOSI balls were like a thing. And said, you can either sit on a BOSI ball or a chair. And about half of us just chose BOSI balls. And at the end of the year, we focused better. We didn't distract people. We had great abs. And so like just those two different ways of thinking about how to include students um, made a you know, profound difference. Not only was I allowed to be in the classroom and keep learning, but it sent a message to all the other students that there are different ways of showing up in a classroom. And then to like fast forward that quickly to just like the cultural norms we set as adults. I'm a part of an education equity fellowship. We sit around and read texts and then talk about them. And in this education equity fellowship, a bunch of texts were passed around that we had to read with our eyes. And I'm dyslexic. And I was like, okay, why are we doing it this way? Like, I read with my ears. Both are justifiably ways that we can read. And if we really care about inclusion, like, this is sending a message, and I had to be the one to say it. And so just thinking about these standards that we set for adults translate to the standards we set for kids. And then to the point that Michael is sharing, I mean, it's really systems, right? So the cultural norms, the way we invite people into spaces, thinking an extra step about how do we make sure that everyone feels like they get to be seen and heard and valued, that's actually how we change systems. And the tools of an IEP or the tools of special ed, I mean, these are tools, but they're built to, you know, either include or exclude people. And I know that's what we're here to talk about today. So I'm excited about the ways in which we can change systems so that those tools are simply tools and they do what they're supposed to do and they don't leave anybody out. Yeah, I think something we really want to be able to unpack with and for the participants today is what do we mean when we use the term inclusion and what is it not? Because all of you sort of spoke to this idea of just being inside of a room is not inclusive. Um, being able to access your tools and materials outside of that room is not inclusive. And having a tool that you are unfamiliar using or have to advocate for yourself and practice over and over again in a crowded room on your own is also not very inclusive. So what is inclusion? When you've seen it or experienced it done really, really well, what does that look like? And I will just sort of put that question out there to the three of you and ask you to discuss what really strong inclusion looks like. I'll try, all right, I'll jump in. Feel <laughs> <laughs> free, you, thank you, Barbara. Feel free to, to, to inter interrupt me and you know, we can have a conversation going. So you know, think about where I'm working, Learner Variability Project, right? So for us, full inclusion for everybody means understanding their learner variability, which is their strengths and their challenges. And one of the things that we say in, um, uh, I have notes, so my paper is probably making a little bit of noise, apologies. Um, but one of, one of the things in a paper, and I'll put the paper in here in a second, that we say is when you understand learner variability, you see a design challenge, not a student problem. And that's the mindset that we need to walk into. And this, this includes all children, where if whatever people's biases are, you know, trying to change those mindsets uh, around students. So I think that's one way 
to look at it is through is through learner variability and and but then it then it's not just uh, understanding but addressing uh, these issues like addressing an issue I, I think David you know putting your chair out in the hallway is not they might have understood what was going on, but that really wasn't addressing, you know, what what you needed in that moment, right? The other the other teacher uh, was able to to bring that in. So, it's it's both of those uh, things, and that falls under the bracket of of learner variability. Once again, wearing the hat that I'm wearing. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I think also, I mean, you 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 hit a great point. I think David also hit it on the head. Was speaking about just the the, the educational space and space and place today. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we exclude students just because of the spacing? But I think also from a bigger point, how do we exclude students from a curriculum? Um, mm-hmm. If students don't see themselves um, in the curriculum, if students um, can't honor, can't identify the mirror and me, um, then they're excluded. And I think at times you don't think about those pieces. I think ultimately um, when you talk about exclusion, I think, um, and we've all seen it, uh, the the national equity image. We've all seen it. The three kids standing on a box uh, oh. looking over the fence, right? We all know the national equity image, right? And we have a couple of different boxes for this kid, a couple of different boxes for that kid. And, and I always say you all that when we talk about inclusion, that's probably the greatest example of exclusion. And people say, well, well our false inclusion. And people say, well, Dr. Macklin, what do you mean? Well, we focus so much on the kids standing on the box and we focus so much on the size of the boxes. But if you really want true inclusion, if you really want true inclusion, if you really want to foster a space and place in the educational setting where all students succeed, then remove the fence. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. But removing the fence is the work then that would uh, would would provide e- equality for everyone. And so that's the hard work that takes place when it comes to inclusion. Mm-hmm. I love this conversation. I'll just sort of add on two parts because I think the brilliance has already been shared. But, you know, I think sometimes we forget two things. A, I imagine many of the folks who are joining us today are gen ed teachers. And, you know, 80% of the time, students who are on IEPs or neurodiverse are in the gen ed classroom. And as somebody who was trained as a gen ed teacher myself, like there is very little given to teachers to prepare them for that. So Mm -hmm. I think that part of the challenge is we ask these teachers to like be prepared for all things. And then we've given them very little training. So I just celebrate the folks, the adults who've chosen to join us today because um, this is what it takes. And then, you know, to the spirit of what does it take to bring down the fence? I think we often think about, like, again, like, where are we centering the problem? We love to center it on the student. I mean, even in the ideas that the way we go about this, we identify a student as they're learning disabled. First off, Mm -hmm. that language is awful. Who wants as a student to show up where your job is to learn and you've been told that you're disabled at doing it? Like that's, that already is a problem. So how do you bring down the fence? You have to realize what are you going to give up? And I also think, you know, it's worth naming. And I often think about this as somebody who is a white cisgender male who is neurodiverse. And I got the opportunity to go to Brown University in Columbia. But I am very aware of my race, my gender, my socioeconomic status, and how if some of those extra variables had been different, you know, the intersectionality of where neurodiversity intersects with race or gender or class Etc. Like those things, we can't ignore. These aren't siloed issues. Um, and so, if we really want to bring down the wall, we have to do the work to recognize where intersectionality plays a pivotal role in, in determining the success or failure of a student. And I think also to your point, I mean, when you talk about you, you made a great point with intersectionality there. And I know that we speak to classroom spaces and places, which is here, and there are many teachers who are here uh, who are thankful for the work that they do every every day. But I think also from a bigger scheme, we talk about legislative that are cutting. 
uh, educational funds on a daily basis for mm -hmm. teachers and students to be able to, David, as you said, to be able to delve into those pieces. And so how do we as individuals also advocate um, through legislature to ensure that we have the financial resources that are needed for all students to succeed? Mm -hmm. You know, we did a national survey and it found that the American public, uh, public school teachers and public school parents felt that uh, teachers don't have the time, the support, nor the professional learning to address learner variability in a classroom. You can pull out learner variability and say almost anything else. And that's why the point about systemic change is so important. Uh, Systems-wide change, I should say. Systems-wide change is so integral to all of this and also looking at uh, the policy world. I also want to say the intersectionality. I just want to, you know, underscore what you said, David, because the intersectionality of race and learning differences, disabilities, neurodiversity has to be recognized. Um, of what my son could do, and, and I think this also comes into advocating and and seeing yourself in the in the school. What my son was able to do as a privileged white male to advocate for himself. I wonder if that would have applied to all students of different race, of different economic status, of, you know, and, and I think that we, that has to be such a central point of whatever we're doing uh, in the learning disability community. Well, and again, Barbara, to your point, I mean, I challenge us that um, our, our educational systems should not be built on advocacy. And unfortunately, the, the level of advocacy determines the success of the student. Um, mm -hmm. Or at least what the student receives, and and I believe that our 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 educational system should be solely based on student need. Mm -hmm. You know, I think yeah. a lot of times we we see that more, yeah. we I think a lot of times we see that when we have the conversation, uh, which is one that I often have of caseload versus workload. And at the time, mm -hmm. a lot of times we will say, well, when the caseload for a teacher is. 16 or 17 and so this is the supports that they get well i will tell you all from being a classroom teacher from being in educational spaces for the last 25 years that the the student number necessarily doesn't matter because i can give you five students right who will have a caseload who will take much more work than those 17 and so i think that the idea of caseload versus work workload as we talk about inclusion is also a key piece mm-hmm mm-hmm um, I think something else that informs the way we address this opportunity in front of us to truly transform the landscape um, and take an asset-based approach to all kids and all classrooms is how we discuss this challenge and this opportunity. Some of us say neurodiverse learners, some of us say students with IEPs or students with disabilities. I would love to hear from each of you how you are experiencing those terms, but I'd also like to say two things before we do that. One is that when I was um, a child growing up, I did not have a disability, but my father, before I was born, had a significant physical disability, he had a traumatic amputation of one leg because he served in the war and then later had the other leg amputated. So I grew up and lived with someone with a significant physical disability. And I always felt comfortable with that term because it is a disabling feature to have to navigate the world onto prosthetic legs. Um, it takes more energy and time and thought to navigate that world. Um, so I never heard that term as a, ter a disparaging term. It honored my, my father's ability and what he was navigating. But I know people feel differently. And then I think about my own time in special education in collaboration with um, 
ARC, the Association for Retarded Citizens, the Advancement of Retarded Citizens, and that being the term of respect at the time that it was conceived and a, a term that we we no longer use, but we still, um, the organization still goes by that name. So our terminology matters, our terminology evolves. Um, what would education look like if we talked about skill needs rather than learner needs or, you know, some sort of learner deficit? But I'd like to hear from each of you how you would frame this transformation and how the adults who are having it should be leading it or could be leading it. So I think, Carrie, I thank you for that. I think one of the things that that really work hard to do in this space and place um, with uh, individuals is really being able to understand what we call or what I call disability language etiquette. Um, I, I think that we have to understand that you, you, the first piece is, piece is being able to use really that first person language. I mean, that's the that's the the number one key. And and mm-hmm. so you're you're not marginalizing or identifying a person first by their disability. You are identifying the person first. So you may say, Dr. Macklin, what does that mean? Well, let me help you out, right? You would say people with disabilities instead of disabled people, mm-hmm. right? You, being, you know, a, a person who uses a wheelchair than a wheelchair-bound person. You're not identifying. And again, that also goes into really the thought of, uh, uh, of, if, of our ism, which is ableism, that you have to be mm-hmm. able to fix that person because something's wrong, right? Which is a suffering or that they're suffering or afflicted because of that diminishes them and marginalizes those people. So I think using that person first language is the first place where we start. Great. I'll jump in since I kind of flagged like what it meant for me when I got the label of learning disabled. So I'd love to, you know, go a step further. And I so appreciate, you know, bringing in this idea of ableism because the truth is it's much bigger than, um, it is both using language like person first language and what does it mean to be an anti-ableist? It is all our jobs to look around and see ableist practices, regardless of whether you identify as being a part of the disabled community or not. And when you see something, do something. And for me, that feels like a very inspiring moment. And the second piece that I would add is I'm listening to the young people. When I talk to young people, they use the word neurodiversity. So now I use the word neurodiversity. I'm super clear about in the context of a school system, you need the words learning disability. You need sometimes obviously even more, usually much more specific than that. And, you know, one of the reasons why I exist is so it's not just on the student, maybe the parents or guardians and the teachers to help determine this language. We bring in like innately cool. When I say innately cool, because when you're 18, you're kind of innately cool. I learned this as a 43 year old, um, especially to my kids. When you bring in a young person who identifies with a similar label as a middle schooler, they can help create that cross translation. And then it's less about, oh, the weight of this language. And it's more like we use person first language. You should use words that work for you. And also in the context of the school system, you need these words because that's where your rights come from. And I did just have to flag a comment I just saw in the chat, which is like disability is the one community you will likely join. Someone said like, you know, you're one accident away from uh, what, like even in our later years, we're all joining this club in all likelihood. So it's important to actually start to understand what can we do at a young age and throughout to recognize it's just part of our experience and the social construction of how we do or don't let folks in is really the determining factor on whether or not we create inclusive societies. I think you made two important points just emerged. One is listening to the community that is being discussed. How is this community discussing mm-hmm. the phenomenon? Mm-hmm. And 
and probably starting by asking permission to adopt that terminology to to use those words like neurodiversity. I saw a lot of that in the chat. Like, yes, mm -hmm. I'm neurodiverse as well. And that is a great term. Also, the challenge that I, I think I saw a comment fly by that said, you know, not everyone agrees that putting the person mm -hmm. first is the right way. And there is no singular correct answer to this challenge. And I mm -hmm. think the the call to the community of leaders who are creating the environments that students and teachers navigate in classrooms is to be humble and open to these differences and to be willing to listen, to be able mm -hmm. to be told that's not the term we use now. We say this and that's okay. We are yeah. all continuing to get to know one another and we need to be open to one another. Barbara, I wanted to, oh, sorry. I wanted to point out Deborah's comment in the chat as well, uh, where she writes, not all disability ca categories agree with people first language, such as students on the spectrum. It's it's a, uh, the student, the young adults that I work with uh, mm -hmm. uh, run the gamut from that dyslexia is my superpower. You can agree or mm -hmm. disagree, but guess what? For them, it's their superpower to mm -hmm. uh, one of my children who will not ever reveal She'll reveal to get accommodations, but nothing else because the stigma impacts her so significantly. So, you know, I've come, I used to do the, the language, uh, the people first language, uh, but now I'm, I don't, I don't know what to do. I'll be honest with you. I don't know what to do with neurodiversity either, which is what my son used. Right. Uh, and uh, I, I, I tend to, and it's, it's complicated when you're writing something uh, because you, you know, you don't, you don't know which direction you're, you know, to go in. But typically when I'm with a group, I'll ask, what do you, what do you want? What do you want to be called? How do you identify? And I think that, uh, that seems to, uh, to work because it's not a monolithic community. Mm -hmm. But Barbara, to your point, the most powerful piece, in addition that you said about that is that you ask, right? So yeah, exactly. always, right. You ask, right. I mean, yeah. I, I think we have to, we have to start there because I always say, that you can't make decisions about people unless those people are at the decision-making table. Right. And if they're not at the decision-making table, then they're on the menu. So, exactly. you, right, right, right. Yeah, so yeah, you yeah. ask, that's the very first step. Yeah. You, you know, one other, sorry, and, one know, other just, like, story that sort of relates is my, my son in school once, somebody, a teacher asked, why do you need, um, Kurzweil was an AP history class and um, he, he was trying to explain, you know, why he was the only one in the class with dyslexia. But the long story short, in a conversation uh, with the teacher and the head of the history department, he said, I, I can help explain to you dyslexia. You just need to treat me like a human being. I mean, and that sums up that kind of like ask, you know, find out why, why do they, why do they feel this way? How can we accommodate uh, their needs or whatever, uh, uh, or what label they want to use or how they see themselves. Anyway, sorry, well, David, I didn't catch up. No, and I will say that in this work, I am often asked, uh, I am often asked at least once a week that, uh, hey, I don't know this student's race or I don't know this person's mm -hmm. race. How do I go about asking them what race they are? And this mm -hmm. is across the country, right? Mm -hmm. And I always say, well, let's start here. Let's start with the human race. Right? 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 Let's start with that race and then from there build from those pieces. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to hearken all the way back to, I think something that actually maybe you said, Barbara, it was about metacognition, right? In terms of mm -hmm. like, when do we allow 
young people to start to recognize, and it's really all people, how mm-hmm. their brains work and to give them that gift. It's actually always developing, right? Even now as adults, we're still trying to figure out how we learn and think best. And, you know, the courage that it takes is for us to be wrong with each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think what you just said, Michael, is like so on point. Like it's, it's when you're too scared of being wrong, too scared of asking that you're taking something away. And are they too young to be able to have that conversation? You're not going to probably hurt yourself by asking, you know, how do you identify? And if they're like, I don't know, you're like, great. Okay. Well, that's a terrific conversation. In my house, it is wild. This is the only time I'll mention the CNN hero thing. So like my kids are little and they watch this thing on TV where their dad was getting an award basically for being neurodiverse. And um, not long after my, I went and got my kids both identified. I thought they both might be neurodiverse. One is, one isn't. I cannot tell you how disappointed the one who isn't. Like she, her, she was heartbroken because no. from her perspective, that was an identity that was like super great to have. And I was like, dude, your mom's not neurodiverse. She's awesome too, right? So, <laughs> and 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 so it's just. But in our house, we have a lot of conversations about identity, and so not being scared of it is important. And it's, mm-hmm. it is on the micro level. We're talking about these things in the macro level. Whenever you extrapolate things to such a large, you know, extreme, you're obviously going to leave folks out. If you've met one person with dyslexia, you've met one person with dyslexia. Yeah. So it's okay to be able to think about these things in the big picture, which is our point today. And also to just say, I'm going to sit down and start to have a conversation. I mean, I'm reading Adam Grant's new book and he identifies it in kindergarten the kindergarten teacher is one of the most, no pressure to the kindergarten teacher signing in today, but like <laughs> the most likely identifier for a student's long-term success in school and in life. And yeah. I, my son happens to have an amazing kindergarten teacher right now, and I'm seeing it happen. And so like, I believe that. And it's just because of the kind of conversations they have in his classroom. I wonder what it would take to promote an asset-based approach for all learners. I mean, we are here today to celebrate and honor students who have been identified as having some sort of disability and an IEP, all as defined by IDEA, the federal legislation. So there's a million terms of respect and choice that we may want to use while we have that conversation, but I'm gonna use the legal term that, that teachers are probably most familiar with because they're the terms that guide the instruction in the classroom. So if we wanted to take an asset-based approach to honoring our our learners who are neurodiverse, our learners who have IEPs, our learners who have been accurately or inaccurately identified as having disabilities, what would that asset and strength-based approach look like on a a classroom level as well as a systems level? So I I think I'll start first with the systems piece. I think as a systems piece, um, really understanding that students, what students bring to a space and place, um, mm-hmm. culture, language, disability, socioeconomic status, immigration status, sexuality, all those pieces are strength added mm-hmm. to a space and place, value added to a space and place. So I think from a, a system standpoint on, a, on, a, on an educational level and uh, space and place, I think that's there. Now, I think from a classroom level, um, being able to understand um, that we don't operate from the deficit theory, which says that these students bring this to the classroom. And so we are automatically going to marginalize them in the educational space, in the learning space, not challenging them, not holding them to high standards because of these different pieces. So I think asset is the exact opposite of that. Mm-hmm. 
Did you want to go, David? No, go for it. I'm still, I'm still okay. uh, admiring <laughs> and enjoying Michael's comments. Sometimes I just become the participant. I forget that I have to reply. So you no, no. I feel the same way just listening to everybody here. I, I, you know, I think, and Michael, I so, so, so very much agree with you. I think from in a classroom situation, it's like looking at that whole child mm-hmm. and looking at all of the pieces that are strength-based. And let me give you an example one, this is with our, once again, with our learner variability navigator, which is built on a whole child framework. So it's not just content or domain specific content. It's also cognition. That's like working memory, attention, et cetera. It's social and emotional collaboration, uh, belonging, can, you know, creating a sense of belonging and student background, all assets, primary language. It doesn't have to be English, right? It, it's an asset uh, for, for pe- people who are, are mm-hmm. multi or translingual, right? But here's an example. So if you have a student who has dyslexia, and that, that is a challenge, um, but, they, but you also realize across this whole child framework, guess what? They are really strong at building relationships with their peers. They love working with their peers. So what do you do? You, put, you use text-to-speech, that's like recorded books, and you create a book club. So that student uh, who, or a group or anyone who has universal design for learning, right, who wants to hear the book on a record as a recorded book can join a book club and have a conversation with peers. They don't feel isolated. They don't feel like they don't belong. They can still have that conversation uh, that they want to have with peers. And that's a way to address strength based in, in, in a whole child framework with a, with a challenge. Great point, Barbara. Yeah, my, Great point. My mind's just wandering to where we are at with growth mindset right now, too, right? Like, when you talk about assets, immediately you're also talking about deficits. And I do think everything that's been said here is spot on. And I think we can always take time and really try and, you know, highlight where young people have assets and apply those assets to getting certain tasks or learning done. And also, it's okay in the, the deficits. They may or may not be things we want to, like, you know, pay a lot of attention to, but like the way I see instruction, particularly right now happening around growth mindset, the power of yet and recognizing where you're struggling, that might be where the learning is. And it's just a matter of you defining it, whether on you're failing, like that's, sorry, that's an F versus that's where the learning is. Mm -hmm. And there's a difference between like, you know, my brain, we've seen the, if you do the fMRIs on my brain, I for sure have dyslexia. I still do. Like, I'm never going to not have dyslexia. So you may not want to spend all your time focusing on that because there's other ways to read. Mm-hmm. Um, and the instruction that I ultimately got was different than whole language. It was like multi-sensory phonemic approach that worked for me. And I do actually have reading ability. So that was like a shift from Dave's broken to there's just another way to teach Dave to read. So, you know, I think we've gotten so stuck and it's important to understand where the system was built, right? The system was built for folks who look and show up in the classrooms mm-hmm. a very specific way. So if we're willing Again, I love to bring down this wall to just say, well, that's not what good is and that good can be broader. Then we actually can free ourselves from this sort of binary, mm-hmm. either you know, assets or deficits to actually just saying there's different ways to get from A to B. We want to create pathways for everyone to get from A to B. And sometimes there's going to be little deviations and that's where the learning is. But I would love to take this conversation in two different directions. So <laughs> one one direction being, I saw some comments in the chat, and and we all sort of referenced it in our discussion that 
oftentimes accommodations for children who have learning differences or disabilities are useful or even fun to children who do not have disabilities. You mentioned the special seat, you know, or, or text to print or something. So are there sort of some salient examples we could offer teachers or leaders on this call of ways that we could take a, a growth mindset for everybody in the class and say, these are things that work for some kids, whether they have IEPs or not. Some kids would rather sit on a ball than sit in a chair. Some kids mm-hmm. read the print and some kids listen. And, and what might a more flexible, what, how could we make the system more flexible and responsive to the people who are, are navigating that system? I'll just start by saying normalizing these things. I mean, so much of the way these conversations happen are in whispers. Like when you get an IEP, when you like go, like you have to, at least in most schools, you have to be struggling a bit before you actually get the IEP. I and mean, this is like an awful way to start. So, you know, I think as educators, we have the opportunity to just normalize that not everybody learns the same way. Not everybody's going to use the same tools. And we're going to do our best to try and create spaces where, you know, these tools are readily available. Um, and that can be, in the young, you know, in the younger grades, a place where the conversation starts. And as you get a little bit older, you can actually ask the, I've seen this happen. We do this with schools we work with at eye to eye, create class constitutions that the whole classroom participates in. So it's actually not on the educator. The number one challenge we get is the educators write us and say, can you just give me a set of tools that'll make my classroom inclusive? And we say, Mm -hmm. the tools are actually already in your classroom. We can teach you how to have those conversations with your students and then create spaces that actually let everyone feel seen and heard. so, you know, I think that there's some very practical tools, like you've given an assignment and you make sure that it's available to be, you know, accessed through multiple means. But then you can actually just say, we do this because of the values of making sure that everybody can like reach this material in a way that's fitted well for them. And then it becomes obvious all the time. Mm-hmm. And, every, and it's everyone's responsibility to call it out. It's not just always on the educator. Yeah. So I think David hits a couple of key points. And David, I really love the classroom example. I think you know, for me, what becomes salient, Carrie, is, is, of course, the UDL, Universal Design for Learning. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, when you are planning um, for all, right, I think those those three pieces or three aspects or three core principles from UDL, I think, is how, uh, to answer your question, how what can we give educators tools to run with right now? I think those three uh, those three core principles, engagement, representation, and then action and expression is key. But I think from those three pieces, if you're starting somewhere as an educator and you want to know how can I uh, ensure that uh, I am accomplishing for all students to learn, I think I think the, the key piece is really the engagement piece. David mentioned it, right? Let his students make choices, voice and choice within the classroom. Um, how do we how do we teach students inquiry and advocacy within the classroom, right? Mm-hmm. Pre- presenting lessons in ways that they're tied to students. Um, as we know, students who feel connected to the learning uh, are going to achieve better. Um, and then I think another piece is also creating opportunities for students to uh, interact with each other. Um, I, and so I think just from the gauge of pieces, those three pieces become salient. Yeah, I really agree with the, the learner-centered approach that in the classroom is even when they're young, listen to you know, listen to them and adapt mm-hmm. what they're saying in, in, into into the work that you're building. But you know, just to step back and take a micro a macro look at what's going on, I think you also have to look at state state policy and district policy and how can state policy support district policy? And, oh, did did I say this? Maybe the federal government could fully fund IDEA (laughs) 
but mm -hmm. we, we won't we won't even go there right now. We, we're we're looking at, by the way, um, it's an upcoming project to look at what are you know strength based. By the way, is in the legislation and a twenty seven Supreme Court decision for I, for IEPs in special education. Whole child is not, but we're gonna we want to look at what are uh, for a handful of states that are doing a pretty good job what directives and guidance are they giving to school districts to school districts sorry <laughs> jet lag is kicking in to school districts um, uh, on creating strength-based and whole child IEPs and what are the districts doing with that so that there are some exemplars that it can be done uh, and uh, and and then the other point is and I was in a meeting once and everybody did the head nod, like colleges of education need to be able to work with general education teachers, not just special ed teachers, uh, since we do have inclusion theoretically in classrooms on how do you, how do you actually create authentic inclusion for students with uh, learning differences? Yeah. Yeah, I think we, we know in it, Lexia Learning, when we talk about the science of reading, we know that most teachers are not prepared to engage in science of reading based instruction in their classroom because they haven't been prepared when they're becoming teachers. And I think that notion of professional learning and ongoing professional mm -hmm. learning is um, a, a very exciting topic because there's so much in there. We expect so very much of our teachers. And teachers are amazing and exhausted, and they're carrying a lot on their shoulders. And we know they show up every day to do right by kids. And mm -hmm. it's our responsibility to make sure they are as well equipped as possible to see the beautiful, diverse garden of learners they have in there and the different kinds of light and soil and nourishment they're going to need, depending on the children who are in that classroom at, at any time of the year. So I would, I would love to have sort of a final conversation around a topic that came up earlier in our discussion, and that is the notion of um, privilege and leveraging our privilege and that, that all of us have privilege and some of us have a lot. And it, it sometimes seems like the more privilege we bring to an environment, the less able we are to acknowledge it and welcome people into the experience of removing barriers or removing obstacles, because for some of us, those obstacles helped us get to where we are, or some of us think we don't see them. And what does it mean to enter into a community and be an ally, an advocate, a co-conspirator to disrupt these barriers, to remove these fences? Um, how do we bring more people into that? I think I want to leave that to your conversation, but I think, Barbara, you, you did a beautiful thing not a very eloquent way to say it, but you did a beautiful thing when you shared that you were grappling with how to say and how to talk about something. Because if you're not from a community, you never <laughs> want to other a community, and yet you you want to be part of a majority that is working on behalf of a, a <laughs> community. So what is what does it mean to be an ally, an ally or an advocate for students with IEPs and their teachers in the classroom? So I think a couple I think a couple of things. And I think I think first, when we talk about privilege, we have to understand that the, the conception and the thought of privilege um, has really taken this this country by storm. Um, and, and I do want to note that when we talk about privilege in the book that was written, uh, D'Angelo here, that that book was written. And, and for those who don't know, it really sat on the shelf until 
the unfortunate incident of George Floyd. And then mm-hmm. after that sparked in this country um, and that book became a a bestseller. But I think I think understanding what privilege really means, I think individuals become offended at time because they don't understand the true meaning of privilege. And so mm-hmm. I always I always carry take the time to break down privilege um, to the most simplest form. And so I'll use an example here with 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 as we talk about um, Barbara, Bar- privilege doesn't say that because Barbara identifies as Caucasian and Dr. Macklin identifies as African-American, that Barbara has had an easier life than Dr. Macklin. That's not what privilege says. Mm -hmm. What privilege says is because David and I are males, we have been able to navigate systems easier in this country because Mm -hmm. of how we identify. We have more privileges because of that. No. Now, yes, those privileges are based on race. They are based on ethnicity. They are based on disability. There are many intersects that gain those privileges. But I think being able to understand that, I think. So you ask the question and I'll and I'll close my piece with this. How do we combat privilege? We combat privilege with empathy, not sympathy. So I'm going to give I'm going to be vulnerable here with the group and, 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 and just tell you how we combat it through the lens of Dr. Mack. The New York Times had an article that said 60 percent of women are afraid to run at night. Right? That was a New York Times article. Right. Because of the safety of mm-hmm. those people. Right. Dr. Macklin is an African-American male and I'm not afraid to run at night. So I don't know what that feels like. But as an African-American male, the same feeling that those women feel not being feeling secure running at night. I feel the exact same way when the police pull up behind me and I'm driving in the car. Mm-hmm. Two different spaces, two mm-hmm. different places, two different worlds. But the feeling of empathy allows me to be in that space and place. That's how we overcome privilege. There was a chat uh, that just said that was the best description anyone's ever heard. And I couldn't uh, agree more. Mm-hmm. And uh, so thank you for that. And I just want to you know, pull the language of co-conspirator. You said that at the very end of kind of describing. And I think that's the key, right? Like the the empathy allows us to be a co-conspirator. I mean, I've seen a lot of folks, unfortunately, be the opposite of what we need as co-conspirators, which is like taking a step back. You need to take a step in. Obviously, you need to figure out when you're taking others with you and when you're more quiet in that room and when you're actually saying the things that need to be said as co-conspirators. And, you know, for now, I'm an optimist. I always see a crisis and think there's an opportunity. So despite the fact that we're living through a time that, you know, I think for some, they may say, well, goodness, what's going to come of this? I feel, and when I hang out with young people, you know, for me, I feel like we have an opportunity here. My my favorite part of the pandemic, if such a thing could be said out loud, (laughs) was we gathered we were about half the country and we gathered young people on Zoom uh, through the pandemic and kept seeing people from different races, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different political persuasions. You know, as much diversity as exists in our country showed up virtually. And the through line for us was that everybody identified as having a neurodiverse identity. And what I saw through those young people was the opposite of what we read in the papers. We saw them being co-conspirators for each other. And so I think as we talk about how do we show up with each other, we must also include young people, not only because they're part of the story, but I actually think a lot of the misgivings we have about young people are false. I think they can actually be part of the solution. So, you know, when we talk about how do we change a school, how do we change a system, 
we have to include them because again, they're the ones who are most affected. They're the ones who are living through this. Just very quickly, empathy, empathy, empathy. I, uh, uh, Michael, I, I so agree with what you said, and that's not sympathy. That, that it's, it's really important to make that distinction. I put in the chat our IEP project, Strength-Based Whole Learner Research Guide for Teachers, because one of the things it said is if a teacher, if you don't have enough time when you're writing up your IEPs to go through this whole uh, guidebook, sit down, take a deep breath and have empathy, begin with empathy. And that will really help you, you know, get go through how do you write up strength-based whole child IEPs? I also want to say that, uh, you know, I'm first generation college. My mom, I think she raised me on, on cute little sayings, but one of them that relates to this empathy thing is don't judge anybody until you walk in their shoes. And that has stuck with me since I was a little kid. Because that, that, you know, that, that empathy card, I think, is, is so important and underestimated, and it doesn't cost anything to start with that. And that I, I think that empathy, not sympathy, is that mindset sh- shift, uh, could lead that mindset shift that we need to, to um, be asset-based oriented when we're working with all students, including those with learning differences, disabilities, or who are neurodiverse. I think this notion of empathy is really resonating in the chat with our participants, Mm -hmm. and it's a a really elegant note to begin to conclude the webinar. So I want to prepare participants that I'm going to ask you to give some sort of final closing thoughts on an asset and an asset based approach an empathetic approach to all of our all of our learners. Um, I want to credit uh, Courageous Conversations by Glenn Singleton. Uh, courageous conversations about race with that term co-conspirator, um, someone who is being who is willing to step into and engage in challenging conversations to create more opportunity for empathy and for peace and for the removal of barriers. Um, and Dr. Macklin, thank you for starting us with that beautiful analogy. As a former English teacher, I think analogies can be so powerful and part of privilege is not having to think about those analogies or thinking you don't have to think about those analogies and that is a very privileged place to be. So if we are distinguishing empathy from sympathy and we are honoring all of our learners, all of our teachers, if we are transforming systems, what does it mean to take an empathetic asset-based approach as opposed to sympathy? How would we distinguish them? And then how do we leave this conversation with energy and optimism for what we can all do together? And that's a big, that's a big question. So I will say, while you're thinking about that distinction between sympathy and empathy and charging forward, how grateful I am to all three of you, how grateful I am to your extraordinary expertise your vulnerability, your willingness to grapple in the gray so that we can create uh, a light for students and their teachers and their families. Um, Because we believe all children have the capacity to read and learn and all adults show up to do that for them and they need the right accessible and flexible tools to do that. So I would say sympathy, I mean, truly in our space and place. And again, we're talking about um, here, uh, the difference in how you notate it. You know, sympathy is uh, truly uh, noting and acknowledging someone's pain, but empathy is is, is feeling that pain with them, mm-hmm. right? And so, how do you make that transition um, to truly understand those pieces? Um, mm-hmm. And I think, lastly, I'll leave with this: when you talk about sympathy and empathy, 
feeling that pain with them. Uh, probably one of the greatest civil rights or the greatest civil rights leader of our time, Dr. MLK, uh, wrote the Birmingham letter. And that letter, uh, which is familiar in many spaces and places, um, really speaks to feeling that pain with them because MLK said uh, that there's one person, and again, this was written, um, of course, in 64, 63, but he said there's there's one person who's worse than the Ku Klux Klan. He said there's one person who's worse than the councilman. That means person who make laws that keep people oppressed. He said that person is the moderate. Mm -hmm. That person who refuses mm -hmm. to feel pain with individuals and take mm -hmm. the first step. I was going to, you know, sort of just slightly planned it. You know, I, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the, the choices that we make define us. And I think often if we don't take the time to be uncomfortable and to learn our history and to learn the, you know, the, the systems that got us here, then we're unable to really like connect with somebody who, for whom we want to be a co-conspirator, for whom we're trying our best to be empathetic. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of times people, especially adults, can get stuck and say, well, you know, how? how can I have like a, a new choice tomorrow than I made yesterday? And the answer is you've like today, you've signed up today. You've heard us. Uh, we're in this with you. I make choices. I'm going to be making choices literally later today that could potentially have ripples within my community and in the communities at large. And I'm going to try my best to not just use muscle memory. If I get in a space that feels uncomfortable or that I see maybe that feels too comfortable too, by the way, yeah. um, I'm going to always just try and pause, be open to the idea if you really want to try to change this world for now and for the generation coming up, we actually have to do something differently. And that just takes living like an examined life. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I love what are what you not only willing to do, but what are you willing to give up? Yeah. Barbara. No, I just love what both of them said. <laughs> um, but, you know, I'd like to point out a comment and I apologize if I'm not saying your first name correctly. Rachel Lee, she said in here, uh, you know, on the empathy conversation, but empathy doesn't necessarily mean you have to be a savior to learners who come with less to the table. I think that's I, I really want to thank her for for putting that in there, because that is the distinction between empathy and sympathy. Empathy means that, you, you know, you, you make space at the table, not just in name only, but that where you're asking people who are in the community, what do you, what do you need? You know, how, you know, is, uh, what, what, do, what do you want? How do you want to shape this policy, this program, this approach to teaching and learning where they're legitimate partners uh, mm -hmm. in this, not in name only. And, and, and through that, you can, that's where you develop empathy uh, and, and understanding. I think it's like I said, I'll go back to my mom's thing is like, don't judge someone till you walk in their shoes, right? Mm -hmm. Think about, and it is about learner variability, understand the, the complexity that makes us human. Um, and we're not just the behavior as a student, you're not just the behavior that you manifest in the classroom. It's like that iceberg, right? You see the tip of the iceberg in the classroom, but when you really understand and learn about who these people are, you'll see the whole, the whole, the whole iceberg. I think the, the participants and attendees agree that we could spend hours together unpacking <laughs> where we are, but I want to thank Barbara and David and Dr. Macklin for your insights, your wisdom, your experience, your vulnerability. Thank all the participants and EdWeb. 
Thank you, Lexia Learning, for the opportunity to bring people together. And we hope you all move forward as co-conspirators with our students and their teachers to transform systems. Thank you so very much. We hope you enjoyed this EdWeb podcast. If you'd like to receive a CE certificate, you must watch the video recording. Recordings and quizzes can be found in the EdWebinar archives. Please visit home.edweb.net slash podcasts for more information.